If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with an update on our second season. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he did not commit. Now, the biggest development in the case in 35 years could lead us one step closer to the truth. Listen to the complete second season of Bear Brook, now available wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. All I do know is that nobody was ever charged. Alberta didn't just go missing. She didn't just go missing, and she didn't just walk away. She knew the person. She trusted the person. It's been really hard because some of our immediate family members were uh, person of interest and suspects in uh, being involved with Alberta that night. Were you afraid to go to the police? Yeah. I just had to be quiet. And I was like, oh my God, what have I done here? If I didn't, I felt turn my head away. She would be here. We really just want to get your side of the story. We're doing the story about Alberta, and we really want to hear from you about her last night. Can you tell us anything about it? Was she at your house? I'm Connie Walker, and this is Missing and Murdered, Who Killed Alberta Williams, a podcast and CBC News investigation. As a journalist, you spend a lot of time searching for a good story, deciding which ones to research, which ones to pitch, and which ones to let go. But sometimes, a story chooses you. And call me superstitious, but I think this story found the exact right person at the exact right time. I'm an investigative reporter at CBC News in Toronto. I remember it was just before lunch last October when I got the tip that started this unbelievable journey. You hear of journalists getting anonymous phone calls from whistleblowers or brown paper envelopes filled with secret documents. But this tip came to me in the most mundane way, by email. I didn't recognize the sender, but the subject jumped out at me right away. It read, Alberta Williams' murder. Intrigued, I clicked it open, and I still get chills when I think about what it said. She was murdered by That was it. The email was just one sentence long, but it was the beginning of a journey that would take my producer Marnie Luke and me across the country and into the center of an unsolved murder. She was murdered by For now, we've beeped out the identity of the person named in that email. For legal and ethical reasons, we can't point a finger at someone in an unsolved murder without more information. After reading the email, I immediately googled Alberta Williams' case. She was murdered in 1989, in Prince Rupert, British Columbia. 27 years later, her case is still unsolved. Who was Alberta? Why was she killed? And why is the person who wrote that email so sure he knows who killed her? There was only one logical place to begin. 
I need to start with the man who wrote the email. Why did I hit send? Because it was the right thing to do. And I'm not, well, to be quite blunt with you, if I can, when you called me back, I almost didn't even know if I should answer the phone. Because it was like, oh my God, what have I done? As soon as I read his email, I wrote back and gave him my number. And we talked on the phone that very afternoon. And I was shocked to find out who he was. Yeah, it would definitely be considered a cold case. I mean, a cold case, there's no definitive uh, definition to say, okay, if it hasn't been solved in five years, it's a cold case. It's just His name is Gary Kerr, and he's not just some armchair detective who sends random messages to journalists. He's an actual detective, a former cop, and he was the lead investigator in Alberta's homicide. A lot of these cases are really, really solvable. And I know on the Gary and I spoke many more times after that, but it was a few months before we were actually able to meet face-to-face. We had spoken so often on the phone that I'd begun to develop a picture of him in my head. He told me he grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan, which is where I'm from. So I imagined a big guy with a handlebar mustache. But when I went to his house on Vancouver Island, the guy who answered the door was different than I'd pictured. He was shorter, with a friendly face that was immediately welcoming. Gary lives here with his wife and Sig, their German shepherd guard dog. The reason we call him Sig is the gun I always carried, my 9 mil was to make as a Sig Sauer. It's a German-made automatic pistol. So I just named him after the gun I had carried for all those years. So Gary, you sent us a pretty compelling email. What, what compelled you to write that email to us? And, and why are you convinced that you know who's responsible for Alberta Williams' murder? I guess just, uh, it's a case I've always thought about. I do go back online once in a while and I'll look at various cases or, you know, it's just, it's an interest because I was so involved in so many of them. It's a case that's stuck with me, you know, right from the day it happened. And it's, you know, really got me thinking again at the time. I, I do know it's an unsolved case. And I just felt I wanted to reach out to somebody. Something inside me just said, hit send. I've spoken to a few police officers about other homicide cases I've reported on. But none were like Gary. He's so candid and open. I was surprised when I learned that for over 30 years, Gary worked for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP. He's retired now. But clearly, his cases are still with him. There's another box of notebooks, another box, another box. I've got another box or two downstairs of notebooks over the years. So this is 30 years of... Yeah, I've still got at least one or two boxes downstairs. I don't know how many notebooks I'd have, maybe a hundred, a couple hundred maybe. But just in relating to... What's it like, I mean, looking back or looking through some of these? Yeah, it's just kind of... Uh, shocking, I guess, in some ways. For most of his career, Gary worked in major crimes. The cases he worked were among the most violent. Abductions, robberies, sexual assault, and homicides. You know, over the years, there's been... I couldn't even put a number on it, but, like, way too many murder investigations. I don't know, 50, 60. And some of them really stick with you, and the ones that generally stick with you are the ones where... Nobody's ever been brought to justice in the family. I hate that word closure. I really do. But, you know, it's 
you just want the family to to know that somebody has been found responsible for killing their daughter, their sister, their aunt. Out of all the years I was in the RCMP and all the years I worked homicides, you know, there's probably about three or four, maybe five cases that really, and they truly do, like it really sticks in your guts. Alberta Williams' case is one of them. I want to tell you more about Alberta, but first I feel like I need to stop here to explain something. Alberta's story is not an anomaly. It's part of a horrific trend in Canada. The scale of the crisis has been clear for years. Hundreds of Indigenous women murdered or missing in Canada. Indigenous women are disproportionately victims of terrible violence. A haunting national disgrace with no solution in sight. We are three times more likely to go missing and four times more likely to be murdered. Police have identified the body of a woman found last week near BC's Highway of Tears, where a number of women have disappeared in recent years. According to the RCMP, there are more than 1,200 missing or murdered Indigenous women in Canada. But advocates believe that number is actually much higher, and the problem doesn't seem to be getting better. It seems a week doesn't go by without an alert. Another woman or girl has disappeared or worse, is killed. The loved ones of hundreds of Indigenous women, missing, murdered, unsolved. But while those numbers reveal the scope, they can also obscure the individual, because each woman, each girl, has her own story. Connie Walker reached into an isolated Manitoba... It's become a major issue in Canada. The federal government has launched a national inquiry, and every news organization in the country is now reporting these stories. But for me, it's more than an important story. It's personal. I'm also an Indigenous woman, Cree from Saskatchewan. I grew up on a reserve. I've experienced the good and the bad. I know about the realities of life for Aboriginal women and how, until recently, these stories have been largely ignored. It's the reason I became a journalist. And for the last two years, I've been focused on helping to tell the stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Not just about the crimes or the violence, but who they were, how they lived, how much they are loved, and the impact their death or disappearance still has on their communities and their families, even decades later. This is the story of one young woman. I'm looking at the Prince Rupert Daily Herald from September 1st, 1989. In the classified section, right next to an ad for a local hair salon, a picture of a pretty girl jumps out. It's Alberta. She's smiling, but it's not a huge grin. It looks more like she was caught in a partial laugh. Her dark hair is shorter at the top and parted down the middle, and it feathers out on the sides down to her shoulders. She's wearing a shirt with a black collar and small, delicate earrings and a beaded necklace. And I don't know how much of what I'm about to say next is colored by what I've heard about Alberta from her friends and her family, but she looks nice, kind, with warm eyes. Right above her picture 
It says, Missing, since Friday, August 25, 1989. Alberta Gail Williams, 5'2", 115 to 120 pounds, 24 years old, shoulder-length dark brown curly hair. Now, this next part will become important later on. Last seen wearing a blue sweatshirt and black stretch pants with slip-on shoes. After months of looking into Alberta's case, I feel like I've gotten to know her a little bit. And I really want to find out what happened on the night she disappeared. And if the person Gary named in that email is actually responsible for her death. Hi, Claudia. Hi. How are you? I'm okay. So nice to meet you in person. Thank you so much. I met Alberta's sister, Claudia Williams, at a park near her house in Vancouver. It was a gorgeous spring day, and we sat on a bench surrounded by cherry blossoms, with the children's play structure just a few feet away. I'm excited to meet Claudia in person and to tell her about Gary's email, but I'm also nervous. Interviews with family members of missing and murdered Indigenous women are incredibly hard. I know these are important stories, and families want to tell them, but my probing sometimes feels like such an intrusion, and I feel guilty bringing up the pain and the hurt and trauma of losing a sister. But I also really want to tell Claudia about Gary's email. And one day we got an email from somebody, um, and the subject said, Alberta Williams, murder. And in the body, it said, it said she was killed by, and the email named a person. And I think you know the person I'm, I'm referring yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, I do. So I wrote back, and I got in touch with the person who sent the email, and it turns out he's a former RCMP officer who was the lead investigator in her homicide, so someone that you would have met. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good that, you know, Alberta's case is not forgotten. Claudia only sort of remembers Gary. It was 27 years ago, and her parents, Lawrence and Rena, were the ones that had the most contact with the RCMP. Both of her parents have since died, and now Claudia feels it's her responsibility to try to get justice for her sister. And since the night Alberta disappeared, she's also had her suspicions about who killed her. Does it surprise you that he says he thinks he knows who's responsible for Alberta's death? No. Doesn't surprise me at all. Why not? Hmm, Simply because, um, you know, for me, I know myself. You know, it's, again, it's a matter of evidence and all of that. I know for myself that, you know, Alberta didn't just go missing. She didn't just go missing and she didn't just walk away. You know, she trusts it what she did. She trusted the person? Yeah, she did. She knew the person. She trusted the person. Nothing to fear. Yeah, and not only that, I was with her that night. Claudia and Alberta spent a lot of time together. In 1989, they both lived in Vancouver, Alberta with her boyfriend and Claudia with her young son. What else? Tell, tell me a bit about her. How would you describe her personality? Fun. A lot of fun. She never took anything serious. She is so much fun. 
Even if somebody pissed her off, she'd shrug it off. That's the way she is. She's just very caring. With her parents, she was close. It was They were a very close-knitted family. Geraldine Morrison was Alberta's best friend. They lived right next door to each other growing up. But yeah, we went out picking berries, walked along tracks, did a lot of walking, mostly babysitting. I did a lot of babysitting when I was a kid with my cousin, too. And we also lived right next door to each other. Yeah, yeah, that's how we were. Yeah, or and uh, if we did, like, we'd bang on the wall. We'd have a certain bang that we'd call each other's. <laughs> yeah, when we were ready and we've done our chores and everything because we didn't have a phone and we weren't allowed to step out the door unless all our chores were done. And we also helped, like, with our parents being in the fishing industry and uh, we helped look after each other's families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was, we were very, she was very helpful that way. What were Alberta's dreams? What did she want to be doing? Well, when we were younger, she used to always talk about traveling, just getting away from the small villages and just travel. We used to talk about being nurses. Do you think Alberta would have been a good nurse? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Just because she was so kind-hearted and she had a lot of empathy with her. Was she a good friend? Every time I drive by or go to her trooper, she's on my mind. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. There's only one road into Prince Rupert, along Highway 16. It's a windy road, with mountains on one side and the Skeena River on the other. In 1989... Alberta and Claudia were struggling to make ends meet in the big city. The sisters decided to return home for the summer to Prince Rupert to make some money. The Daily News in Prince Rupert calls the port city the key to the great northwest. And if you don't know it, it's a pretty remote spot in northern British Columbia, about halfway up the coast. Back then, it was a boomtown, packed with people migrating there to work in the fishing industry, on boats or in the canneries, like Alberta and Claudia. At the same time, Gary Kerr was a young constable, stationed at the RCMP post right downtown. And at that time there in the RCMP, there was only two of us that were working in plain clothes. At the time, it was called a general investigation section. Now you'd call it a maybe a major crime unit or something, but there was only two of us. And so then we started the investigation into Alberta. And at the time she went missing, she was going to school in Vancouver, and she had come back to Prince Rupert to work in the fish plants or fish cannery for the summer, because the fish canneries at the time were literally going 100 miles an hour. Prince Rupert was a 
it was a crazy town at the time. It was extremely busy. It was just a crazy wild place. Did you guys have a good summer in Prince Rupert that, that summer? Mm, it was okay. There was a lot of work. The purpose of going there was just to work. Work and make some fast money, then come home. Working in the cannery was hard. And by the end of August, both sisters were looking forward to going back to Vancouver. But it was time for one last night out. Tell us what happened on the last night that you saw Alberta. Uh, the last night that I saw Alberta was actually our last day of the cannery. It was payday, time to come back to Vancouver. And then, you know, everybody kind of, you know, oh, we're going to go here, we're going to go there, we're going to go to the cabaret, I'll go to Bogies, big cabaret in Prince Rupert. It was called Bogies? Yeah. I'm going to stop here and admit that I'm still confused about the bar that Alberta and Claudia went to that night. Claudia says it was Bogies, but the first time I talked to Gary, he called it Popeyes. Both bars were in the old Prince Rupert Hotel. One was upstairs and one was downstairs. I've discovered that you can use the names interchangeably. If you say Bogies or Popeyes, locals will know what you mean. And by all accounts, it was the place to be on a Friday night at the end of summer. And, you know, everybody was in bogies, you know, table full of people, probably a couple of tables pulled together. I knew everybody at that table, so did she. And it was quite packed, the tables, and I thought, well, you know what, they're, they're already ahead of the game, they're laughing. And How was Alberta that night? How was she doing? Good, she was having a good time. She was having a good time. She was, you know, I was looking at everybody else. But then I looked, I stood there and I looked at her. And she was laughing so hard, you know, I looked. And I just smiled, you know, just let her know, I'm here. And, you know, I just roamed around, came back again, stood there. You're, you're keeping an eye on her? Yeah, I don't know. Something told me, just keep an eye on her. So I did, you know. Other than that, you know, if I was going to leave, I would have told her. Hey, you know what? This is a bit boring for me. I'm going home. But that's the way we were. We let each other know where we're going, what we're doing. I tracked down a few other people who were there that night. Hello? Hi, is this Eva? Hi, Eva. It's Connie calling. Thank you so much for calling back. Uh-huh. Um, people who knew Alberta and remember seeing her there. Do you remember, uh-huh. do you remember Alberta? Yep. Eva didn't want us to use her last name, but she was at the bar that night, a designated driver. I've never been to that bar. What was it like? Everybody liked to hang around there. I mean, go there and meet their friends. Was it popular? And popular place, yep. And did you, do you remember seeing Alberta that night? Yes, I did. She was sitting at the same table, only all the tables were joined together. They they put their tables together, so it was quite a big, long table. Everyone describes it as busy, lots of people, and a band playing. Geraldine Morrison says Alberta was in a good mood that night. We were all sitting around, drinking, dancing, laughing around, just talking with everybody. And... 
there was, everybody that was there was all happy and hadn't, hadn't seen her for a while and it was real nice to see her and her sisters. Was she having fun that night? Yes. Yes, we were. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was crazy. Lots of girls. A lot of girls talking. But, yeah, everything was going as the way it should have been going. I found this interesting or odd. But Claudia never sat at the table with the group. But she says she watched them and Alberta all night. Did you trust everyone at the table that she was I with? had no reason not to trust, distrust anybody. I had no reason. They didn't give me any reason at the time not to trust anybody. To me, it's a bunch of friends getting together one last night. And uh, unfortunately, that was one last night for her. Claudia, Alberta, and most of the group at the table stayed at the bar for hours. They stayed until after the band finished, after last call, until closing time. So that last night in Prince Rupert, what happened at the end of the cabaret? At the end of the cabaret, everybody walked up those stairs, and then outside, there was a bunch of people to my left. Alberta was maybe from here to you, but this way. And I was standing there, and then I thought, well, what now? And I said, we have to get back to Vancouver. And Alberta said, come with us, come with us, we're going to a party. And she told me where the party was. She said who's, who was hosting the party. Yeah, she said who was hosting the party. And, and then in between her saying that and my head turning like this, and then she said, Claudia, Claudia, and she goes, come with me. And then, you know, I just looked and I said a couple of words to my boyfriend. I turned around. In that sort of time, she was gone, gone. That was the last time Claudia saw her sister alive. And what happened next is murky, to say the least. Did Alberta go to the party that she told her sister about? Was there even a party there that night? Did she see another friend and go somewhere else? Was she picked up by a stranger? Was she kidnapped? There are numerous theories. But Claudia believes the simplest scenario is also the most likely, that Alberta went to that party. When Alberta didn't come home, her parents filed a missing persons report with a local RCMP, and it landed on Gary's desk. The date again is uh, August 25th, 1989. And the first uh, thing I've got noted there is missing person, Alberta Williams. July 8th, 1962, with a question mark behind it, that would have been her birthday. 24 years old, was in Popeye's Pub Friday night until closing. And that was, I guess, how it all started. People disappear all the time. According to the RCMP, most missing adults are found within 24 hours and 90% within a week. But Alberta's case was different. And again, there was nothing initially that would have really suggested anything 
criminal. It was, I mean, people are reported missing all the time. And the more we dug into it, it was, you know, I mean, something wasn't adding up here like very, very quickly. I mean, from all the interviews we had done, and it wasn't just with her family, it was the people she was with that night. I believe there was at least one of her sisters there. I think it was Claudia, if I remember right. Maybe even another sister. There was other family members present. We interviewed everybody, you know, we possibly could. And again, it was just from never having met Alberta in person, it was, it was apparent very, very quickly that this was completely out of character for her. Everybody we talked to said she was, you know, responsible. And a lot of times people will maybe tell you what you want to hear as opposed to the truth. But again, from everybody that we talked to, I mean, there was just no red flags raised that would, she'd never been a runaway. There was no history of drug, drug abuse from what I can remember. She wasn't a heavy drinker by any stretch. It was just sort of all the things kind of put together raised those flags. It was out of character. Uh, absolutely out of character. So when she didn't come home for days and then weeks, I mean, what was going through your mind? My parents were super worried. They were super worried. And for me, I needed more time. I needed more time to process everything and to find out and retrack the steps. Where did everybody go and who left and where everybody lived? I didn't have all that information. The only thing that I did have was mom and dad worried and I was with her that night. And that was the worst part. Because you were there? If I didn't, I felt, if I didn't turn my head away, that she would be here. And she was calling me to go with her. I don't know if it would have made the situation worse, or it could have been both of us, or it could have been the other way. She could be here today, and it could be me in her shoes. So, to me, to find out the answers is the most thing I can get out of this life. Because whoever did that, Alberta, that person needs to be held accountable for that. Three weeks after she disappeared, Alberta's body was found near the Skeena River outside of town, just off Highway 16, which is now known as the Highway of Tears, because so many women have either disappeared or been killed while traveling along it. The investigation went from very quickly from a case of uh, missing persons to a, a homicide case. In this case here, like it's sort of your worst case scenario as a policeman, uh, female, young, and I believe she was killed where, not right where she, in the location where she was found, but within, you know, probably feet of there, because it was, again, evident, in my opinion, in our opinion, that there had been a very violent struggle. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that I mean, Alberta did whatever she could to get away from whoever it was. But well, she died a horrible death. I mean, it is, 
like there's no way to minimize it. It's, it's horrible. It wasn't only the horrific violence. Alberta's case has stuck with Gary because he always felt he knew who was responsible, but he was never able to prove it. I know it's not that long ago, but 1989, in terms of forensic examination and forensic evidence, I mean, it's like night and day. I mean, you can't even, I don't think I had ever even heard of DNA. I don't think DNA was even on the chart. Like, you know, we never had computers. I mean, everything was, you know, it was pen and paper. I mean, that's what you had. 27 years later, Alberta's killer has never been caught. But Gary believes this cold case could still be solved. I'm not pretending to be judge and jury because I'm not, but just from having been on that investigation from the day Alberta was reported missing to her, she was found and even going through the, the experience of the autopsy again, it's just, you know, sometimes you just like to sit down and say to somebody, hey, I think I want to tell you who did it and go do something, but I mean, you, I mean, you can't. And because I believe it is a solvable case and I think there's probably more than one person knows something. Like I really, really do. Because she died an absolutely... I don't know if I can imagine a, a worse type of death because if the person that I think is responsible is responsible, that's somebody you should have been able to really trust. Trust. Was Gary right? Did Alberta trust the person who killed her? And did the person he believes killed Alberta really do it? If he was so sure, why wasn't that person ever charged or convicted? Gary seems like a reliable source, but I need to be very careful before I reveal the identity of someone who could be completely innocent. But the person that Claudia believes killed her sister is the same person Gary named in his email. A relative someone Alberta should have been able to trust. There's a lot of questions unanswered about that night. Coming up on the next episode of Missing and Murdered, Who Killed Alberta Williams? Yeah, as far as I know, he was still a prime suspect and always will be. Police hone in on the man they suspect killed Alberta, but another possible suspect emerges. There was always a mysterious uh, pickup truck with some, I believe, Caucasian guy that, that uh, Jack Little told us about. The person that I'm speaking of is somebody that, for all the right reasons you would think, would want to sit down with the police and do absolutely everything they could to find Alberta, and that didn't happen. I feel that other family members I don't know if covering up would be the word, but to me, it's like maybe they have a fear. Maybe they don't want to get involved. To explore more of Alberta's case, visit our website at cbc.ca slash whokilledalbertawilliams. You can listen to episodes online or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Missing and Murdered Who Killed Alberta Williams is written and hosted by me, Connie Walker. 
The producer is Marnie Luke, and the associate producer is Lori Ward. Technical production by Cecil Fernandez and Harold Dupuis. R.F. Narani is a consulting producer, and Heather Evans is senior producer of the CBC News Investigative Unit. For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash originalpodcasts.